Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, starting in verse 13. So we are continuing our series uh, in the fall here, and we're calling it Resolute, Tenacious Faith, for tumultuous times. And these are tumultuous times, but it helps to know that we are not alone. Across the world, God's global underground right now, as I speak, knows about tenacious faith in tumultuous times. And across time, tumult is not the exception, but the norm. And we especially see this in scripture, in redemptive history. Faith is a gift. And in particular, God gifts his people a tenacious faith, tenacious enough to see them through the most difficult moments in life. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at these moments throughout the Bible in the fall. The first few weeks, we looked at the 12 tribes of Israel. Last week, we started looking at the 12 disciples themselves of Jesus. And this week, we're going to expand out a little bit further Uh, This time to two disciples of Jesus who were not in the 12, but nonetheless were part of that earliest discipleship group of Jesus. We know one is named Cleopas, uh, but we don't know for sure his companion. Some say it's his wife. Others say it's his son. Uh, We don't really know. Regardless, Luke gives us this account for two reasons. He says at the very beginning of his gospel, if you look, he gives all of the accounts of Jesus in order that we might have certainty, certainty that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is who he said he is, that we might have certainty in Luke's language about the things we were taught. But the second reason he gives us this passage, he gives us this account, is he gives it as a mirror that you and I and all readers across time would see ourselves in the experience of Cleopas and his companion. So as I read this passage, I want you to consider walking with them, walking even in their shoes. Once again, this is uh, Luke 24, starting in verse 13. I'll read all the way to verse 35, and you can follow along. This is God's word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one 
to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. Will you just pray with me a moment? Lord, would my words and would our meditation... In our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, come and empower this message. Come and open our eyes like Cleopas and his companion. We cannot see you without your intervention. And so we ask you now to do that because we want to see the risen Jesus. We want our hearts to burn. Make it so, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. When my middle son, Henry, was born three months early, it was traumatic, and I received a lot of text messages and a lot of email prayers. But I've shared before that one in particular stood out. It was from a dear friend, and he simply said, Praying for God's mercy as you reconcile the way things currently are with the way things, with the way that you hoped things would be. Reconciling the way things currently are with the way we hoped things would be. Isn't that the story of our lives? Reconciling the way things are with the way we hoped things would be. Isn't that the story of 2020? Isn't that, this is not the year or the season that we had all hoped for. Recently, I went cap- camping with my littlest one in Hawking Hills. And as we were driving there, we passed this abandoned cottage house. And clearly this cottage was set up to be some kind of cute Airbnb uh, in the middle of nowhere. And it was the middle of nowhere. Uh, But it was also clear that nobody had been using this Airbnb for the past six months. I know this because it still had New Year's Eve decorations around it. On a chalkboard, it said, Happy 2020! Exclamation mark. That sign was mocking everybody who was driving by. Uh, this has not been a happy 2020. Maybe there have been deep blessings in it. We found the deep blessings. But by and large, 2020 has been, in my wife's words, uh, a struggle bus. Uh, one recent study by Boston University says that, and I'm quoting, half of U.S. adults surveyed reported at least some signs of depression, such as hopelessness, feeling like a failure, or getting little pleasure from doing things. 
And this apparently is double the rate from the same survey two years ago. There is a disconnect between our deepest hopes and our current reality. There is a deep disconnect between our current reality and our deepest hopes. And because of this disconnect, I am drawn to some details in our text uh, this morning that we read, the Emmaus Road. Cleopas and his wife or his son or his friend, it doesn't really matter. Luke tells us that they were walking home, but while they were walking, verse 15 tells us that they were arguing. Now, our translation, if you're using the ESV, it says that they were discussing. Uh, but in, but the, the Greek word there is stronger than that. It actually means they were having a strong debate. So these two, um, I like to imagine them as a married couple, Cleopas and Mary maybe, are arguing. They're arguing. They're in it. Or even if it's his son or his friend, they're having a strong debate while they're walking. And they're sad also. So in verse 17, uh, it tells us that they were looking sad. That There they stood looking sad. <laughs> I'm drawn to that detail. They're walking, they're sad, they're arguing. And it says in verse 21 that their hopes were dashed. It tells us, verse 21, if you look down again at the text, it tells us that uh, this stranger, who we know to be the risen Jesus, Jesus resurrected in flesh, we know it to be Jesus, but they do not know it yet. Uh, They tell this stranger, Jesus, that their hopes were gone. They say these three words, we had hoped, but we had hoped, verse 21. These these three words as I was preparing this passage really stuck out to me. But we had hoped. We had hoped. Doesn't that just say it all? We had hoped. I mean, just think of your life. When you decided to follow Jesus, you had hopes. Maybe when you decided to get married, you had hopes. Maybe when you started your job, you had hopes. You had hoped. But maybe for you right now, reality and your hopes are not matching. Maybe your, your marriage is a struggle. Maybe you've lost your job or you hate your job. And maybe walking with Jesus is not what you imagined it to look like. But why were Cleopas and and his companion feeling this way? Why were they arguing? Why were they sad? Why were their hopes dashed? It wasn't because a pandemic or because of political unrest. Why was it? Well, they had put all their eggs into one basket. And that basket was Jesus. And you can see how they felt about him in verse 19. If you take a look down at the text, they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God in all the people. And so they had put all of their eggs in this basket called Jesus. But in verse 20, if you continue reading, they share how their hopes in Jesus are currently shattered. He was crucified and he is now gone. This hope that they had is completely gone. Simply put, these two disciples are trying to reconcile how things are with how they expected things to be. Their hopes about Jesus are not matching the reality of Jesus. Do you see it? They're arguing, they're sad. Their hopes about Jesus are not matching the reality about Jesus. Well, what were their hopes? They say in verse 21, if you look down again, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
redeem or rescue Israel. Undoubtedly, they were thinking of the Exodus, which we've looked at in the weeks past, the the great rescue of God's people. And their hope is that there would be a Messiah, a Jesus, who would come and who would rescue, who would who would crush their pagan occupier. This time, not Egypt, but Rome. And instead, what they saw, what they experienced on, on the Holy Week was that Jesus didn't crush Rome. Rome instead crushed Jesus. Their hope might have been that their rescuer would, in a sense, crucify Rome. Instead, their rescuer was crucified by Rome. See, they didn't have at this moment in their worldview any room for the cross, any room for the crucifixion. They wanted a cross fee or at least expected a cross-free path to the good life. And so do we, don't we? I mean, if we're honest, most of us signed up for this Jesus thing because we wanted to to do better at life. We wanted to, to win. And so today, when our actual walk with God doesn't look like hashtag winning, we despair. We're more like Cleopas and his companion than we realize. But here's my question for you this morning and for myself. What if this cross-shaped path is a good thing? What if it is this road to Emmaus, marked as it is with confusion, with lost hopes, with arguments, and with sadness? What if it's this road, and this road only, where we can meet the risen Jesus, the real Jesus? This is Luke's pastoral heart. He's writing to first century disciples in the midst of tumult who are struggling to hang on with their faith. But Luke wants them and he wants us to see that it's this hard road, the road to Emmaus, that is the best road to be on. Why? I see two reasons. On this hard road, the road to Emmaus, the real Jesus shows up. Not the Jesus of our imagination. The real Jesus shows up. Just notice that though the Emmaus Road is hard, it's where Jesus is. One of my favorite phrases in this passage is found in verse 15. It says, while they were talking and arguing together, Jesus himself drew near. I love that phrase, himself. Jesus himself showed up. It's as if Luke is saying they're arguing about the Jesus of their imagination, how they wanted Jesus to go. But then Jesus himself shows up, the real Jesus. And it forces the question, would you rather have a smooth road of your own making without Jesus or a hard road with the real Jesus? That's the question. And Luke gives us so many compelling details to choose the road to Emmaus, to choose the hard road with the real Jesus. On this hard road, Jesus is gentle. Look how gentle Jesus is with his followers here. In verse 17 and in verse 19, he asks two questions, not to trick them or even to test them. But if you've been following Jesus in his earthly ministry, you know he loves questions. When a straightforward statement would probably do for you or me, Jesus decides to ask a question. Why? Because a question draws out the person. 
it, it's, it's as one person calls it, it's generative. It generates more than just a statement. And so just as he did in his pre-crucifixion life, he does in his post-resurrection life, asks a question, not to trick or to test, but to engage, to draw them in. And Jesus, in other words, doesn't go after them in their grief and sorrow, but engages them. He is gentle. On this hard road, Jesus is also patient. So when Jesus says in verse 25, Oh, foolish ones, that isn't at all how we would use the word fool. It's more like naive. And so he spends a long time teaching them or filling in their naivete from the scriptures, how even though it didn't fit their plan, everything, including especially the cross, went exactly according to God's plan. Jesus is patient. He's patient with their misunderstanding about himself. Do you see that? If you're a teacher or a parent, you know how Jesus feels right here. We don't get mad at our children for not knowing something that's very important. We kneel down and we patiently teach them something that's very important. And that's Jesus. He's patient in our confusions. And on this hard road, he's gentle, he's patient. He's also a host. He's a welcomer. In verse 28, I love this detail. And so they drew near the village to which they were going. And he acted, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. Jesus pretends to move on late at night. Why? To allow, even give the dignity to these two people, uh, to allow them to, to invite him into their home. The ancient church uh, says it's at this moment that the guest becomes the host. They think they're inviting Jesus into their lives, but Jesus is inviting himself into their life. And that's just my conversion story in a nutshell. I think I'm inviting Jesus into my house. When honestly, Jesus is inviting himself. He is the welcomer. He is the host. And it's at the table, at the table, it's at the table that Jesus reveals himself to them by the breaking of bread. And isn't that fitting? Uh, the scholar Robert Karras says in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. In fact, Luke says later in his gospel that Jesus, the Son of Man, came eating and drinking. This road is hard, but on it, Jesus invites us to his table. He wants to be with you. In the ancient world, table fellowship was way more than just sharing a burrito at Chipotle with someone you like and love. The table fellowship was the deepest kind of intimacy. Jesus wants you at his table and he reveals himself to Cleopas and his companion as he breaks the bread at the table. Friends, this road is hard, the Emmaus road, but on it you meet the real Jesus who is gentle, who is patient, and who yearns to be with you. Do you remember um, that TV show where a CEO of a major corporation or a company or a restaurant would work at their own store or restaurant, um, oftentimes without uh, the employees, well, every time, without the employees even knowing it? 
Um, apparently, they got a real-life look into how their companies run, but more importantly, how their employees actually feel about the current state of things. I imagine the employees give them, uh, the CEOs, the unvarnished truth because they had no idea it's the CEO. Uh, now, this is not an exact parallel to this passage because Jesus isn't tricking the disciples. But the disciples don't recognize their king. And so they give him the unvarnished truth about their life and what they're struggling with and what they're wrestling with. And yet, even still, in all of that mess, with that unvarnished truth, Jesus is gentle, patient, and yearns to be with them, invites them to the table. He reveals himself, actually, in their confusion in their anger, in their sadness. I love seeing Jesus, and I love imagining Cleopas walking with his wife, arguing, and I love Jesus himself showing up in their dispute. He doesn't wait for them to clean it up. He shows up exactly in their messiness. And that's what I want you to hear this morning. Jesus is drawing near to you on this hard road that you are on. He respects your questions your sorrows, and your hurts. He is inviting you to share your unvarnished story with him. And I want you to do that now. I want you to do that now. I want you to share your story with him. I want you to to see and have permission from this story that Luke gives us about the risen Savior, the King of the cosmos walking in, inviting us to his table and revealing himself in the realness of life. On the hard road, the real Jesus shows up. The real Jesus shows up. The second thing I see here that compels me to choose the Emmaus or to choose the hard road over the smooth road of my own making is this. The real Jesus on this road sets our hearts on fire. He not only reveals himself He changes our hearts forever. The disciples say in verse 32, as they're they're thinking back to that moment when Jesus is unpacking the scriptures from beginning to end about how it all points to him, they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? I just bought a new garage heater. You flick a lighter and the thing just ignites to like become the inner core of the sun, basically. And it's this amazing thing. It starts to burn really hot and it emanates heat. And that's what happened to their heart. Their heart was like um, a cold metal object in a cold garage. And then Jesus comes and he flicks the lighter and and their hearts just start to burn. Their hearts set fire. How can that happen? Two ways in this story we see how it happens. Number one, Jesus completes and fulfills the story of the world. See, the Bible is fundamentally telling us the true story of the world. It answers questions like, where did we come from? What went wrong? Where are we going? And like every story, there is a hero. 
And guess what? We are not the hero. Though we pretend to be, we are not the hero. Jesus alone is. And so in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Things that were shadows in the Old Testament find their substance in King Jesus. It all points to Jesus. He lived the life that Israel was called to live, but failed to. He died the death that we all deserve to die because of our disobedience. And Jesus spends time showing them how the cross, how what looks like the defeat of King Jesus was not plan B, but plan A all along. Because it's at the cross that Jesus wins. He defeats Satan. He defeats the powers that be. He defeats sin, its consequences in our life. He wins at the cross. The cross is the victory of Jesus. What looks to the world like the loss and the shame of God is actually the victory of God, the glory of God. And as Jesus was raised bodily, not just mentally, spiritually, bodily, as his body was raised, he was the first fruit of the new creation. When everything that is wrong with the world gets unbroken and unbent, Jesus completes the story of the world. And that makes our heart burn when we see it. It makes our heart on fire when we see it. When I open the Old Testament and I see the promise in Genesis 3 that a descendant of Eve will crush the serpent's head, but but, but when he does, he will himself bleed. My heart burns because I see Jesus on the cross crushing our enemy. When I look at the exodus and God's people putting the blood of a spotless lamb who died in the place of them so that the the destroyer, so that God's wrath would pass over them and their house. My heart burns because I see the cross of Jesus where he died in our place as the perfect spotless lamb so that God's wrath would pass over a deserving sinner. One who deserves his wrath. When I read about the suffering servant in Isaiah, one who would uh, go to his own death quietly and obediently for the sake of God's people. My heart burns because I see Jesus on the cross dying willingly and gladly and according to plan. See, Jesus completes the story of the world. And because he does that, he also completes our own individual stories. That's why their hearts are burning too. Because his life, his death, and his resurrection restored their hope. They say, we had hoped that things would go according to our plan. Instead, Jesus somehow died and he's missing. And Jesus comes in and he says, oh, oh, that's how you envisioned me. How it really happened was, yes, I died, but now I am risen. And now I am completing your deepest desires. 
We try so hard to be the hero of our own story when all along it's Jesus and Jesus alone who can be the hero of our story. And so when we worship like Cleopas and, and his companion and then the 11 and everyone who was with the 11 after, that is, that is worship. And when we worship, we are most fully alive. Jesus completes our story. Ten years ago, I read a book by the French philosopher uh, Luke Ferry. It's called A Brief History of Thought, A Philosophical Guide to Living. It's an amazing book, uh, not only because it's written so well, but because in it, he admits that all human philosophy is, is basically an attempt to answer the questions that only the resurrection of Jesus can answer. Now, he doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. His eyes haven't been opened yet by Jesus. But he admits that only the resurrection of Jesus answers the deepest problems in life. Like capital D, death. And all the lowercase d deaths that we experience and have been experiencing these past six months. The road we are on is hard and it's marked with death. The reality is not matching our hopes. But it's on this road that our hearts can burn again. He alone, Jesus alone, completes our story and the story of the world. He alone can make our hearts burn. So let me ask you this question. Is your heart cold? I want you to consider rekindling your heart on Jesus. What are you trying to kindle your heart on these days? I want to say nothing will set it on fire. Nothing will warm it with hope except Jesus. And so how can we do that? How can we rekindle our hearts on Jesus? Well, until we see Jesus face to face, Jesus promises to meet us in the most humble of ways in this text through prayer, by just talking to him as Cleopas and his companion did. I want you again to bring everything to Jesus in prayer. You don't have to clean up your prayers for Jesus to receive them. So I want you to just begin today telling your story to Jesus. Prayer. In Scripture, Scripture, Jesus opens the Bible with them. And in it, he says, this is where I am. Do you see it? This is where I am. Do you see it? We can encounter the risen Jesus through Scripture. This is why we hope at hope that every time we're preaching, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, that your heart, it's our prayer that your heart is singing about Jesus because it all points to him. And then you can encounter the risen Savior by the Holy Spirit in church community, especially at the table, the Lord's table. In fact, Luke is purposely pointing out the the connection between the Lord's table and and Jesus revealing himself. We believe that at the Lord's table, it's not just something in our brain, but it's something that actually happens that by the Spirit, Jesus shows up in a special way. And so we are invited in these very humble, simple ways. Prayer, Scripture, the church community, to encounter the risen Lord until he comes again. These are invitations to meet with him. 
I want them to be a renewal for you. I want them to be an invitation, not a way to prove God. Many of us approach prayer in the Bible and church as like the three areas to prove to others and to God that we love him enough. But I want you to instead flip the script and see them as invitations of a Jesus who yearns to sit with you at the table. A Jesus who yearns to be with you right now. This is a hard road. This is the Emmaus road. And we are the Emmaus church. But Jesus draws near. He delights in us. He redeems us. So if you're on this road, don't wait to figure it all out. Give it all to Jesus. Let Jesus surprise you with hope this season. Let him and him alone make your heart burn. And let's ask Jesus even now that he would open our eyes. Lord, we do come to you now and we ask you to open our eyes. Some of us, as we pray right now, maybe have never done that. But today we do. We ask you, King Jesus, open our eyes so that we can see the real you. Lord, we admit our hearts have been cold. Would you reignite them, Lord? Holy Spirit, do this work. Lord, we pray for anyone who is losing hope right now. Jesus, would you be their hope? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.